Ding dong merrily on high, let all the children suffer. Tom, those are the words, aren't they? Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Welcome to episode five of The Strange and Deadly Show. My name is Christopher Clayton and I'm joined by... Tom Elliott. My good friend Tom Elliott. Merry Christmas, everybody, and Merry Christmas, Tom. Merry Christmas, Chris, and Merry Christmas, everyone. I do apologise if my voice is a bit deeper than usual. I've been indulging in a bit of Christmas spirit last night, and it's uh, taken its toll, but uh, Merry Christmas. Well, this is our Christmas episode, so we will uh, move on to what we're talking about shortly. But in the meantime, uh, just something of note. We uh, spoke last time about how we got onto the new and noteworthy page on iTunes. Mm -hmm. And I noticed this time round, after the last episode, we moved to number 21. Now, I I don't know how that's measured or what that means, but it was just nice to be there. So uh, thanks for everyone who's downloading us through iTunes and and getting us that exposure. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's it's a nice little victory for us, I think, especially as if you look a couple of lines down from where we are, there is a a podcast there called Porn and a Donut. Uh, Tom, do you have anything to say on the matter? I don't quite know what to say about that one, Chris. We seem to be associated with a couple of sex podcasts, don't we? Like, we had the Better Sex Workout podcast. We were right next to them. And now we've moved... I think we've moved past them, Tom. I think that they've realised that we, we, we are indeed superior. Uh, so mm. we've moved past them, but now we've got the, the porn and the donut. And I'm thinking, well, first of all, how do the two correlate? I think the only way we can get to the bottom of that is uh, I'm going to have to listen to that one. Mm-hmm. And we'll do a full review of it in the new year. Absolutely. Now, we have a double bill for you this week, as we always do. We're back on our themic episodes, of course. Uh, we Last episode was Brutes and Savages and Pigs, two films that were not uh, connected to each other at all. We just threw them together because we didn't know where else to put them. Uh, but this week we're back on our, uh, on our, our themic uh, journey, as it were. And Tom, do you want to tell the listeners at home what we've got in store for them uh, on this episode. Well, this being the Christmas episode, the obvious choice was Christmas Evil. But there may be other films on the list that are at Christmas. I'm not too sure. But uh, mm-hmm. just looking at them at face value, um, there isn't really anything else Christmas related. So we went with a sort of occasion based theme. That's how we're doing this one. And the other film that we're joining with Christmas Evil is Happy Birthday to Me. So. Yeah, not the same holiday or same occasion, but I think they fit quite well. Yeah, absolutely. You could say, for example, something like Silent Night, Deadly Night would fit very well with Christmas Evil. But, you know, if it's not on the list, then we can't cover it, I'm afraid, at least not at this point until we've cleared up the Section 3 list. So we had to go with something that two films that might kind of fit together quite well. And they both have Christmas Evil is often thought of as a slasher movie. Now, you and I, I think we're going to perhaps discuss why that might not be the case but certainly there is there are perhaps elements of that in there and then you have happy birthday to me so you could also say that they're both they both sort of loosely fit under certainly in the case of christmas evil under the the slasher banner as well but Mm -hmm. for the most part yeah occasion-based horror is what we're going what we're going with and we're going to start with a film that tom mentioned that is I think perfect for this episode. Uh, it's our last show of the year anyway, so you're going to be hearing this just before Christmas. Uh, a little film called Christmas Evil from 1980, and uh, I'm going to read my plot summary uh, for this one for you, and then we'll get into reviewing it, uh, telling you what we thought of it. So yeah, Christmas Evil. It was directed and written by Lewis Jackson. It's also known as You Better Watch Out. 
Christmas Evil tells the story of Harry Stadling, who we first meet as a very young boy witnessing the arrival of Santa Claus via the chimney. He's there with his mother and brother Philip as they look on, Harry not realising that Santa is actually his father all dressed up. After the boys head to bed, Harry, young and curious, heads back downstairs and happens to see his mother being naughty with Santa. The sight of the two together seems to affect him deeply and he snaps, throwing a snow globe to the ground. Grrr. That's the kind of noise I make when I throw things, Tom. Good, okay. Many years pass by <laughs> and we return to Harry as a grown man who also happens to be incredibly enthusiastic about Christmas and about Santa too. He has a habit of spying on the local kids to see if they're being naughty or nice and he records the information down in his good and bad books. Harry maintains a steady job at Jolly Dream, the local toy factory. He has a clear passion for toys, but he's recently been promoted to a desk job, much to his chagrin, as he'd rather be back on the line helping to put the toys together. At the factory, his co-workers are fairly dismissive of him, and he's cajoled into taking a shift from one of them under a false pretense. He later discovers that this co-worker was actually spending the night at the local pub, and considers Harry a schmuck for taking the shift off his hands. Harry's disaffection with the commercialisation of Christmas begins to grow, as he begins to see that the executives running the toy factory care more about manufacturing and money and less about giving toys to children. Already mentally unwell, Harry's sanity begins stretching to breaking point, and the idea of dressing up as Santa isn't merely enough. He wants to become Santa and right the wrongs of the world, giving gifts to children when others would not. So, dressed up as the man himself, he drives in his Christmas van and begins a journey out into the local area that will end up with death and destruction as Harry's grip on the world and on himself gradually loosens. I, uh, oh, I really must go now. But now... I want you to remember to stay good boys and girls. Respect your mothers and fathers and do what they tell you. Obey your teachers and learn a whole lot. Now, if you do this, I'll make sure you get good presents from me every year. <laughs> but if you're bad boys and girls, your name goes in the bad boys and girls book. And I'll bring you something horrible. That's the plot for Christmas Evil. I have seen this film before, a couple of times before. Tom, I believe you hadn't. What did you think of this one? That's right. It was a first for me. I think uh, before I go on to the actual film, I'll just talk about the title for a sec, Christmas Evil. I mean, it's it's an obvious pun. You know, someone was going to use it one day, but I just I think the other title fits a bit better, although it doesn't really mean anything as such. You better watch out, but... We'll we'll get into it, but I just don't really see Harry as evil. Mentally ill, yes, you know, 
I don't really see him as evil in the sense of a lot of film killers, you know. So just, you know, a little aside, I suppose. Um, it seems like you know, the original title, in fact, was You Better Watch Out. And mm. according to, I think it's on one of the commentary tracks on, on the DVD release, the Blu-ray release as well, probably. I don't have that one. I believe Lewis Jackson, that was his original title, You Better Watch Out. And it was changed. And he didn't even know about it until he actually saw the film upon release so i think it was changed to christmas evil perhaps to capitalize on the on the slasher thing because it sounds i can understand why people think that this is a slasher and we're going to get into that a little bit later because of the title you sort of you might associate it with new year's evil for example which is another Mm. sort of fairly well known um a slasher movie from the period so i can understand why they changed it to that but you're right i don't think it really quite reflects the character or the story that's right that's right i think if you have the idea in your head of a murderous Santa. Um, it is quite a trashy concept. You 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 immediately think Silent Night, Deadly Night, which is a bit more of a schlocky sort of slash fest. And yeah. with a title like Christmas Evil and a killer Santa on the cover, I think you think you're going to get more of the same, but it's actually, it's not like that at all. No, not at all. I would actually say... I made this comparison in in the last episode when talking about pigs. I actually think that I actually think this is a better comparison now, one that's more accurate. I sort of compare this a little bit to Maniac. Yeah, I I thought that too. It's like um, it's more like Maniac Light. You know, yeah. it's not as uh, not as grimy, not as gruesome, not as heavy going, but in a sense, you're doing the same thing. You're spending time with this guy, and there's times when there's not a lot going on. He's just tinkering around in his life, Mm -hmm. and we're just watching him, and that's what it's all about. We're spending time with a maniac, and to to pull that off in a film, I think your maniac, your killer, your main character needs to have a certain amount of magnetism to keep you watching through those quiet times, and I think... uh, our chap here. What's his, what's the actor's name? His name is Brandon Maggot. Yeah, he pulls it off. Uh, he pulls it off really well, to be honest. I think in that respect, where you, when he's on screen, you're watching him. All these little ticks that he's got going on. I think he does really well. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I think that, I think it's interesting that where people look at the name and they they are prepared to go in and watch a slasher movie, and what you actually get is, uh, there are horror elements to the film certainly. To me, I've I've always viewed it the times that I've seen it as a, a, a sort of a really dark thriller that's really more of a character piece. Definitely, definitely. I mean, let, let's uh, we'll probably come back to this, but let's let's start to get stuck into the story. I think if there's one, maybe not a criticism as such, but the thing that tends to uh, stick in my head as being something that could have been done better is possibly the thing that makes Harry sort of flip, you know? Mm -hmm. He comes down and his dad's dressed as Father Christmas or Santa Claus and he's just sort of feeling his mum's legs. She's got his suspenders on and his stockings and he's sort of like, you know, having a little feel and stuff. And I, I just think, you know, obviously it's confusing for a kid who believes in Father Christmas and... But it's not like he walked in and he was pumping away or something behind it or, or something like that. No, yeah, I mean it's it's a fairly it's a fairly tamed. I mean they weren't even really doing anything. For all you know, she might have lost a remote control down the knickers, and he was looking for them. <laughs> they, they're not really doing anything except he's rubbing, 
you know, his, his wife's leg. Yeah, so, uh, somewhat suggestively. But for some reason, like this, just the, the mere... So I guess, I guess Harry believed in Father Christmas so much that it... I mean, there must have been such a such an unbelievable belief there that just the, the idea that his father was actually playing Santa Claus and was, you know, getting off with his mother, somehow that just broke his world apart. Yeah, I mean, we, we could hypothesise that maybe he there was issues with this kid anyway mm. that we don't know about, and this is sort of just uh, put a particular spin on existing issues, you know, a, a sort of obsessive... Uh, personality. I don't know. It's not in the film, but I just think it, it was a bit, quite a tame scene, and you know, they are pretty much telling us that this is what made him flip, and it's like, okay, well, maybe you could have done something a bit more explicit, or a bit more uh, shocking than, than just sort of giggling while Father Christmas rubs your leg, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you watch Maniac, you get the sense that, that this guy has had an incredibly difficult childhood and there's mm. something there with his mother that is that it's not that's not right whereas this guy this kid like you say uh it's come in and has come in and has witnessed this and that seems to send him off i mean we do get a little bit of a hint from his uh his brother philip played by jeffrey demand we'll get into him later uh, when he says you know much later on in the movie that that harry was always an emotional wreck so possibly mm. that was you know, that, that's some information that we've inherited from him. Possibly he was always like that, and that was just something that, boom, that triggered some sort of psychosis. But somehow, you know, as we move on through the film, through the early part of it, you would think, well, would this make him hate Christmas? Well, actually, not at all. He actually seems to love Christmas, in fact. Seems to love the image of Santa. Seems to love the joy um, of that we get at Christmas time, and he's got decorations up, and he seems like a happy enough guy. Uh but there's there's always there's always that feeling, isn't there, early on that there's something not quite right with him. I do love these scenes, these early scenes where he's going around his business, and for all intents and purposes, he seems all right at first, but he'll do things, um, things that you know we might. Well, I'm not saying we might all do, but things that on first appearances seem normal but he just takes it that little step beyond you know I think there's a scene where he's humming a Christmas song and he starts to hum it really angrily and <laughs> you know stuff like that or the way you look in the mirror while he's got the shaving foam on his face and and uh, just all these little things where he does something he's getting excited about Christmas but he just takes it that one step too far and it brings a, a beautiful unsettling tone to the whole thing and his performance i i really love it yeah me too it it's funny because you were saying that he does some things that are, that, are, that are normal but he pushes it too far he also done, does some things that are quite abnormal for an adult male um is <laughs> if, if you're not a child molester which is uh standing on his roof on his rooftop with a pair of binoculars spying on children now at first of course mm. you look at this and you immediately think well there's something extremely creepy about that um i'm not happy about that but the reason he's he's actually doing it is not because he's you know some sort of paedophile or viewing kids in a sexual way. He's doing it because he's taking it upon himself to judge children and their behaviour based on what he's you know their uh, 
their activities throughout the day you know so this kid so one kid for example takes the rubbish out for his parents and well he's going to go in the good books because he's done something nice there's another kid and um, this little girl that he's extremely fond of who's always very nice very sweet so again she goes in the good books um but there's this kid that this little kid there who's on sitting on a bed reading a penthouse magazine and he doesn't <laughs> like this kid does he at all and he goes in in the bad book so so even then, you get the sense that this guy is, I mean, he's doing something that nobody should be doing, which is judging another person, you know, judging mm. a kid. But but that's quite an abnormal thing to do, isn't it? I mean, did you get a, a sort of creepy feeling from that? It's funny. I never, it not once crossed my mind, uh, you know, an adult spying on kids, it, it does bring to mind kind of, you know, paedophile tendencies and so on, it, uh, very creepy in in that way um and i think sometimes when we look back at oh like there's an episode of the twilight zone i'm going off on a bit of a tangent here mm-hmm. where the two main characters in it are an old man who's actually an alien and a young girl and to watch it now it's it's almost um really hard to watch because there's all this innocent stuff going on you know uh where this old man's talking to the girl but because of the world we live in now it's just hard to watch because it carries such a different uh message now and it's just you watch it and it's just like oh no they didn't just do that but i I never really got that sense with harry there's a purity about him um and when he shouts to the kids across the road and how you doing? And I, I believe in that kind of purity in his character. Um, so not not creepy in that sense, just creepy in the sense of you're clearly insane. Yeah, I mean, if there is that feeling, I think it goes away pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't personally get it, but I can see where you're coming from. So we're moving through the plot here. Uh, we've been introduced to Harry. We can see he's quite a happy guy, but he's clearly, I mean, he's had a job. He's working at this factory, Jolly Dream. You can tell there that the people he's working with, his co workers, they're not very respectful towards him. Uh, particularly this one guy, I can't remember his name actually, didn't write it down, but there's one guy there who basically fobs his shift off onto Harry. Now, Harry's initially not not too upset with that. He's been promoted to a desk job recently, but he, mm. he does have this fascination with toys. And he quite likes assembling the toys. They sort of come out on this assembly line. He puts them together. Um, So he takes the job, takes the shift and finishes that night. And I guess on his way home, he happens to look through the window of the bar of this bar as he's on his way. And he sees that guy and some of his co-workers there drinking. Now, this guy said that he, you know, can you please take the shift? I'm going away with my wife tonight. In actual fact, he wasn't. What he was doing was was. Uh, handing the shift to Harry because he thinks, well, look, I can put... Uh, Harry's an incredibly put-upon character. Well, let me put this upon him. Uh, he's going to mm. take it. Why would he even question it? He's a schmuck. And this goes back to what you were saying about Harry singing a Christmas song extremely angrily because he comes home, he sort of picks up this doll, and he, he's singing this Christmas song, and he just gets incredibly violent with it, incredibly angry, because he knows that people are talking about him behind his back. That's right. You know, it, it it's also setting up the fact that Harry sees the world in a certain way. Like I say, there is that purity about him, that innocence that, and it's just kind of showing you that most of the people in this film aren't actually nice people at all. And you, you know, I guess it makes us uh, sympathise with Harry because he's not wrong in in a lot of ways. Yeah, I've actually wanted to ask you. I mean, let's get into to Harry as a character. 
Is he a sympathetic character? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I, I do feel for him because he needs help. Yeah. You know, he, he cannot obviously function in day-to-day life uh, because no one really sees that. His brother says he's, you know, a bit of a loser or whatever. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, he's he's got issues. He, he needs help. He's never really had that help because he can function in day-to-day life, but he's just slowly unravelling. But he just wants everything to be nice and everyone to be happy. And if if they were, he probably never would have ended up killing anyone. He'd have just been wrapped up in the joy of that, you know? I mean, what do you think? Well, it makes me wonder, up until, up until this point, how did he function as an adult? You know, how did he even make it this far without wanting to go ahead, you know, and kill somebody? It does make you wonder. I think that he's incredibly sympathetic. There's never been a time when I've watched this movie that I haven't felt sorry for him. Because I think he mm. means well. But the problem is that the guy clearly is mentally unwell and it does not need to be out in public. And needs has needed some sort of treatment. I would imagine that he's... That, I mean, there's never a point in the movie in which we, we, we find out if he has ever had any kind of mental treatment in the past. Anything that can psychologically sort of explore him and see what's going on up there. The only thing we know is what we saw at the very beginning of the film and what has led him to this point. Uh, there is a, as you say, there's a purity about him. I mean, there's actually one point where he's looking through the window. Is he looking at the window through at his um at his brother? Is that right? His brother and and his wife are having sex. Uh, I'm not too sure. I'm not too sure whether it was them or not or someone else. Yeah, I can't quite remember. But uh, which is funny. I only watched it again the other day. But um. But in any case, so he's clearly not a sexually motivated character at all. So we know that. And yeah, I do think I love a good hard-boiled character piece where Mm. it's, you know, we we go back to Maniac. Maniac is a lot nastier than this is. This is is a little bit shinier in that regard. But it's got that same sort of ominous tone to it that I really like. And I mean, how did you feel about Brandon Maggart as the uh, as the central character? Oh, I, I thought he was he was great. I think he's it's a very multi layered performance, mm-hmm. and like I say, I absolutely agree. Uh, and we're, you know, we refer to Maniac again, but that sort of magnetism where the character doesn't have to be doing much, but you just want to watch him because he's playing it so well. Yeah. Uh, I don't know uh, Brandon Maggot's other work. I've only ever seen him in this knowingly. Um, but he just disappears into this into this character and he doesn't need to be doing much. You just want to watch him because it is such a magnetic performance like Joe Spinell's performance in Maniac. So, yeah, it, it is kind of like Maniac light. Uh, if, you know, if you don't like grisly, gritty, uh, explicit films like Maniac, then this is probably a good substitute where you can get the same kind of experience. Yeah, you're right. If you felt that maniac was was too nasty for you and too grimy and perhaps too grindhousey i think this would would suit you a lot better i just think brandon maggart like you actually i don't actually think i've seen him in anything other than this to be honest unless i'm just not aware of it he's been in something and i haven't recognized him this is really the only the only thing i know of him in which he's had a, a lead role but it's a it's a you've got to have an anchor somebody who can mm. anchor you to this and i think he he does a brilliant job at it of making you feel sorry for a guy who at the end of the day is on a war path is never going to be unless he gets treatment is never ever going to be stable and sane uh, but you spend so much time with this guy 
that you've got to have somebody who can, who can carry it well. And I think he, he does a, a fantastic job of that myself as well. He does. He's fascinating to watch. And I, I guess the film as a whole is uh, it's sort of split up into two two parts, really. The, the pre-Santa outfit, and then once he puts that outfit on, and uh, his decline really starts. But in a way, I think the fi- I'm not saying the first half is better, but I just I do love those little ticks, those little things he brings to it. Um, you know, it, at one point he looks in the mirror and he does that sort of tap on the nose that his dad did when he was a kid, but but he just does it just a little bit too hard, you know. And then he sort of wipes his hand over his face and you know, removes the mask and just this sort of empty sort of stare left. All these little bits are just fantastic. Yeah, I absolutely love that bit, actually. I'm glad you you, you mentioned that. Yeah, when he wipes his his hand down his face and he's sort of back to being himself again, basically. Uh, But yeah, you're you're right. Two very different halves. Now, I think that the second half, the way that it moves, is we begin to pick up the pace. I I happen actually to to, to really love the narrative of this one because it's very simple, isn't it? it? It never... It's not confused at all. It starts from one place and it goes towards the end. And there's a very natural kind of, for his character, a very natural kind of descent that happens. Gradually, You're watching a man losing his mind, basically. I, I love the fact that it's very clean all the way through. There's never, there's really nothing that happens that, that you know, that's so overly ambitious that ambitious that it distracts you from the from the thrust of the film, which is this guy is is losing his mind. Now he's lost his mind, and out he goes into the world. What he actually does is he ends up gluing um, a beard to his face. He can't pull the beard <laughs> off anymore, and it does seem like at this point, I wonder if you agree with me that he basically considers himself to be Santa Claus at this point, has transformed into that character completely. I think he does. I think he does. Uh, and it's it's funny, he doesn't... I'm not sh- I don't think he actually goes out with the intention of killing anyone at this point. Uh, although he has fashioned those soldiers, which are a bit lethal. Mm-hmm. Um, but he does go out and he steals a load of toys from the factory and takes them to the kids' hospital. And stuff like that. He he goes to a party and you know, and he's dancing with people. He yeah. he does sort of go out to spread joy. You know, he doesn't go out with the intention of killing anyone. It's only that some people sort of, uh, if anyone reigns on his parade, so to speak, if anyone doesn't accept that joy graciously, then that's where things kind of go wrong. Yeah, uh, the thing is though, Tom, it. it... All of the people who he does kill in the movie, they're all incredibly unpleasant and snobby for the most yeah. part, you know. So we have this, this yeah, he's going out, he gives presents to this, uh, uh, gives a bunch of gifts he's got in his van, his Christmas van that he's painted up, um, <laughs> which, you know, might be a bit creepy, you know, driving around in your Christmas van like Santa Claus. And don't forget at this point, you know, he's doing the, um, you know, on a dancer, on prancer, you know, you know, he's, he's has very much... Uh, become santa claus really if santa claus was driving a white van around and so yeah so he gives gifts to this children's hospital and then he has the idea to park up outside a church and inside Mm. this church are two of the people who are sort of executives behind the factory that he works at and he's incredibly disaffected with the whole thing i guess he's waiting for them to come out so that he can 
I wonder what he was trying to do. Do you think he was trying to hurt that one guy? I mean, I guess it goes contrary to what I said before. Um, maybe he, he was going out with the intention of, of hurting them because he did have the, the soldiers with the, the lethal kind of uh, spike on it. So it's a possibility. And he does seem to try and get past these other people. And I watched it again today. So someone puts a hand on him to stop him uh, while they are sort of t- making fun of him. So he obviously went there for a reason. And I guess he was maybe he was going to hurt them or something, I don't know. But uh, it's the other ones who get it in the end. Yeah, it's, it's a, a, a small group of idiots, who snobby idiots, who for some reason decide to make fun of Santa Claus. Who does that? But I know, it, it is a bit broad, this, this scene, the, the way, how posh they are and the way they're just so brutal towards him. Yeah, for no reason at all. I mean, he's, you know, he's standing there outside a church. I think most people would would be okay with that but for some reason they're making fun of him and he snaps and this is the now I am I right in thinking this is the first time that he finally completely loses it he takes one of these toys that you mentioned with the sort of with the sword sticking out uh, mm. and this is off the first time we see any real graphic violence and he shoves the sword uh, shoves the toy with the sword a bit of piece sticking out <laughs> into the guy's eye and we see it graphically and then he takes a sort of toy axe and you know, whacks it into a couple of their heads and kills, I don't know, about three or four people and then gets into the van and, and buggers off. That's right, that's right. Not, uh, it was quite graphic, I suppose, but like we said earlier, it's it, it's quite tame, I think, in, in its violence. It's not really what this is about. I mean, we're, we're in 1980 here um, and it sort of taps into what you said before about the, the title change being done to more capitalise, sell it as a slasher, you know. Mm-hmm. We're in 1980, again, we said it last time or the time before, Friday the 13th, Halloween, let's put Christmas evil on it, so we're sort of tempting people in with the whole holiday horror sort of aspect to it, where it doesn't really fit. When I look on the internet for this movie, look look up information about it on Wikipedia, on IMDb. Everybody calls it a slasher movie. I don't mm. see it as a slasher movie. How do you feel about it? No, I wouldn't call it a slasher either. It's a character piece. It's a character study. It's barely a horror film. You know, the, only the fact that people get killed in it, sort of in the last third of the film, makes it a horror film, I suppose. But um, it's uh, yeah, I wouldn't put it in the slasher category personally. Yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right. I've never considered this to be a slasher. I actually, the, the first time I saw this movie, they've got those sets in. I guess they've got them in in, in England as well. I don't know, but in America, they've got the they used to have these sets of DVDs that had about fifty horror movies on them. Oh, uh, yeah. You know the ones, um, and you would basically they would be spread over a bunch of discs. Uh, most of them were absolutely awful. Uh, I remember that, and I, I bought a set in America anyway, and it had Christmas Evil on it. It also had uh, Deep Red on it, the, the classic Dario Argento film, which I believe we're getting to at some point. I'm not sure, I can't remember if it's on the Section 3 list or not. But um, uh, I know Suspiria is, I think it's Deep Red. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think so. So yeah, uh, and I remember that's where I first saw it. Uh, cut well deep red was cut anyway badly cut horrible print quality and everything but i remember when i first watched it i was a little bit disappointed because i expected it to be a slasher based on the name and it really isn't it i would say it's more of a thriller really a, a sort of a thriller and a great a great solid central character it's a character piece mm-hmm. definitely definitely 
because it's it's interesting in this last third as well. He uh, you know he's going out trying to spread joy. I like the party scene as well, where he's outside looking into this Christmas party, and looks like someone's office do or something, and they come and bring him in, and he he's actually a good Santa, you know. He gets the place going. He dances around. He speaks to the kids. But he does that thing again where he's doing this beautiful job of, you know, getting the party going. And he's saying to the kids, you know, you've all got to be good and I'll come and see you every year. But if you're bad, yeah. I can't remember exactly what it says, you know, but he just pushes it that bit too far. And everyone sort of just stops for a moment until he says, Merry Christmas, you know, something like that. But it's it's him all over, you know, just taking things that little bit too far. Yeah, I mean, it's nicely weighted up until that moment. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, the scales are tipping a little bit here. And in fact, there's actually a woman, I, I don't know if you noticed, immediately after he does that, who looks slightly uncomfortable. Uh, which <laughs> I don't know if that was the, in- I guess it was the intention to sort of say that even this woman is like, oh, I don't know, this guy's a bit weird, isn't he? But what's funny is, I, if I remember, correctly he he goes into this party after he's killed those people outside the church so he's just murdered a bunch of people and then you know he's standing outside listening to the christmas music um, looking in through the window and they bring him in there and he sort of and when i first saw this movie i thought oh dear no you don't want to do it. there's going to be a bloodbath here and it's mm. anything but he gets into the jovial spirit and then he goes back outside and all of a sudden he's you know he's a uh, santa claus on the run as it were well, that's the thing, isn't it? It's like uh, we spoke about before. If As long as everyone's having a good time, as long as everyone's happy, as long as everyone sort of loves and respects him as Father Christmas, he's fine. He's, you know, he's still got these little mad twitches here and there, like when he says to the kids, but as long as everyone's happy, he's happy. Yeah, and I want to believe in him, Tom. I want to believe that he can make it through this. I want to believe that he can somehow become a normal person afterwards, even if that means putting him in a hospital. I still mm-hmm. want to believe that he's going to make it and he's going to be okay. Yeah, yeah, I do too. I do too. But I guess uh, we're sort of at our final run now, aren't we? Where Word's getting out mm-hmm. about there's a killer Santa on the loose and uh, Harry is uh, speaking to some kids and their parents kind of see him see that there's blood on his costume and uh, it's uh, it's Santa on the run and nothing's really going to be the same from here on in. I mean, do, do, how do you feel about how it, it all wraps up? Well, I, I thought it wrapped up the only way that it could really, which was that I think we get to a point where we realise, like you say, what happens is that he meets up with, with these kids in sort of, I guess, in like an alleyway and they're with their parents and their parents are staying away from him because they've heard about this killer santa claus who's on the the loose it's been on the news Uh, there's been a news reporter who's been telling everybody about it with a tremendous moustache by the way Tom. we're always on the lookout for those aren't we oh absolutely (laughs) and the (laughs) the parents they emit one of the guys in there immediately says yeah this is the guy this is the guy who's been killing people and the kids are incredibly protective of of, uh, harry they are. They believe in Santa one hundred percent, no doubt about it. And so you get this interesting scene where this guy, one of the one of the fathers, he actually the father of the little blonde girl, who Harry is is infatuated with again, not in a creepy way. He just she's very very sweet, very very loving. 
but anyway, her father comes forward and tries to attack Harry with a knife, and you get that you get the scene of Harry escaping from that and running away. And now Harry is on the run from, and it's almost like something out of an old Hammer horror movie where you've got a bunch of people with with you know um, uh, lit torches <laughs> and pitchforks. Uh, looking for Harry and he's trying to run away and really I mean you're already thinking at this point how on earth I think at this point he's gone too far he's not going to be able to get away with this what actually happens is he he makes his way over to Philip's house now we haven't talked too much about Philip but basically a couple of times through the movie we 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 sort of uh, flash back over to Harry's brother Philip Uh, we see him as a child at the beginning of the movie and he's a fairly normal guy he's got two kids got a wife uh, he's been worried about Harry because Harry normally comes over for Christmas, hasn't shown up at all, and Harry's wondering, well, where is he? What's happened to him? Harry ends up turning up at Philip's place, and they, well, they have an argument, don't they? And something happens uh, at that point. Philip snaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Philip, his role isn't that pivotal in the whole thing, I don't think. He's I think he's there to just add a bit of backstory to Harry um that you know says he's all he's always been a kind of uh, he's always a screw up that kind of thing. He's there to add a bit of a uh, a bit of um color to Harry's past. But he he's not really that pivotal to the whole plot. But yeah, he he snaps and he um ends up strangling Harry. I'm not quite sure what he intends to do because he drags him out into his van and sits him in the seat. Yeah. So is he was he going to sort of try and get away with it? Like I don't don't quite know. But Harry gives him a a good old punch out the window, and that's uh, that's the end of Philip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, actually, it's not the end of Philip because he gets back up. Um, he does. And, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I, I've got a feeling that that well, Philip obviously snapped. My feeling was that when he he's dragging him outside to put him in the van, he hears that there that all these townspeople are coming, and he probably mm. thinks, okay, well, look, I'll put him in the van, and when they turn up, I'll say, look, here he is, here's the guy, and they can do whatever they want with him, and basically they get the blame for it. Uh, I, could be, yeah, could be. I think that, but it it doesn't happen. Harry ends up waking up. I guess he he thought he'd strangled him to death, but he hadn't. He just you know he passed out uh, momentarily, and you know. Gives Harry a good old punch, boom, uh, knocks him down on the ground and takes off in the van. And mm. Philip goes running after him. Uh, all the townspeople are chasing the van as well. And Harry ends up driving off this sort of, um, like, a, like a, what would you call it? Sort of like a, an overpass or something, some sort of bridge. Yeah. And what happens from, from that point onwards is it, something that confuses a lot of people. It confused me the first time I saw the movie. I've since gone back and you know seen the movie a couple of times. The ending shot of the movie, basically, is Harry's van flying and taking off into the night sky as if it was Santa on his sleigh. Yeah, yeah. I, I love this ending, yeah. to be honest. I, I have read stuff online. I was, you know, going through IMDb comments and stuff, just having a little look. And it does seem to confuse some people. But I really like it. And incidentally, the film gets uh, less than 5 out of 10 on IMDb on the average rating. So I'll say something about that in a minute. But yeah, I, I really like it because we know in reality, Harry's ended up dead at the bottom of whatever that bridge mm-hmm. is or something. You know, he's went off that bridge and died. But in Harry's head, 
when he launches off that bridge, he flies away like Santa, you know, but it's just, it's Harry's, we're sort of getting a glimpse into Harry's sort of uh, insanity at that point, and I think it's a great ending. Yeah, because it, what it says to me is that Harry won, really, mm. at the end of the day. You know, you can say that he's done a lot of bad things, and indeed he has, but at the end of the day, his his goal was to spread joy to the children, and he certainly yeah. has done that. I have to say, you know, it, it it can be confusing because we've actually got a piece of feedback which we'll read later on towards the end of the show where someone's asking us, you know, they're quite confused by the ending and they wanted us to explain it. Uh, Tom, you, you actually explained it there. A lot of people miss it, but when Philip, because Philip's been chasing after the van, yeah. there's one point where, where Philip sort of falls down this little hill. Uh-huh. If you actually listen when he's falling down the hill, you can actually hear the van crashing and exploding. Uh, but uh-huh. it's because... Because he's rolling down the hill and sort of banging into things, I think a lot of people confuse that as being the noise that he's making as he rolls down the hill. But it, it actually isn't. You go back and listen to it. You can you can actually hear when you know what to listen out for. You can hear very clearly that the van has gone boom, crash, and has exploded. So what it's supposed to be is just a very surrealistic ending, basically. Yeah. And a, a lot of people, I get. I, I haven't looked at the IMDb comments because some of them are absolutely poisonous about anything mm. somebody will would excuse a bad film for anything i'm quite sad actually that this film has such a low imdb rating because i think i think it's got a great ending i think it's a great central character i to me it is you were talking in the last episode about pigs being a sort of you know kind of underrated undiscovered gem uh, i can't say this is undiscovered for me because i've seen it before but i think this is a real gem i think it's uh, i said halfway there for pigs but um, I think this is the first one from the list so far that I, I do think is a gem, It's uh, which is what I wanted. You know, it was always a bit of a voyage of discovery. And this is the one that I think holds up really well. I was never bored with it. I enjoyed it all the way through. I'd go so far as to say, of the films we've watched so far, this is my favourite. Um, and... You know, that's not saying much when you've got Brutes and Savages on the list and White Cannibal Queen, but there's also some Cronenberg films on there. But this one, I I really liked it. And it's funny, really, the writer-director doesn't seem to have been prolific at all, but he's done a, a lovely job with this one. I love it. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it, how you do sometimes get those directors who only ever do one, one or two things, but they end mm. up making a movie that every, everybody remembers. As it turns out, I still think this is one that, because of the title, I think people have, have a preconceived notion of what it might be. And, yeah. and let me just tell you, I mean, Tom and I have explained it anyway. It really isn't a slasher movie. It's a great character piece. Don't miss it just because you look at the name Christmas Eve when you think New Year's Eve when you think, well, it must be some cheesy slasher. It really isn't. It, it's a It's a good little strong, ominous moody sort of grim horror movie and horror movie yes you know more of a thriller it's got horror elements to it uh it's tied for me at the moment with scanners because i I think scanners is a bit of a classic but i think this Mm -hmm. is a cult classic as well i think it deserves to be seen by more people yeah yeah absolutely um i mean there's you mentioned a blu-ray release with some uh commentaries which I plan on getting because I'd love to hear more about it. I understand the actor, Brandon Maggot's on the commentary, is he? He is, yeah. It's interesting. Well, I've actually got some trivia and we can kind of 
put put those those two points together. Um, infamous cult movie director John Waters, of course we we know from uh, Pink Flamingos and uh, and other stuff that I can't remember now. Pink yeah. Pink Flamingos and what else did he do? Oh, I can't remember. Oh, but anyway, but you know, look, everybody knows John Waters, um, mm-hmm. incredibly funny guy, great personality. Um, he considers Christmas Evil to be his favourite Christmas movie of all time. Um, he's previously <laughs> recorded a commentary alongside director Lewis Jackson, which is on the the Blu-ray and on the DVD copy I've got from Synapse. Um, he, believe it or not, John Waters actually holds annual screenings of the movie, presumably at Christmas time. Um, let me tell you about Brandon Maggot, uh, or is it Maggart? I'm saying maggot. Um, Lead actor Brandon Maggart has spawned a rather notable figure in music, Tom. He's the father of singer-songwriter Fiona Apple. Um, The whole family is rather musical and is also involved in various forms of entertainment. Uh, I've heard a few Fiona Apple tracks now and again. I know she's kind of fairly big in America, isn't she? I don't really know her, to be honest. I mean, uh, I looked up Brandon Maggart just out of interest and he's 81 now he actually looks like father christmas he's got a big white beard on oh, him right. but um he's an interesting guy he's a writer now he's got a couple of books under his belt uh and he's a painter as well so he seems to have retired from acting mm-hmm. um but he does these other things so yeah quite an interesting fella well this sort of slots into the point you were making about brandon maggart which is that According to the commentary that, that Lewis Jackson recorded alongside John Waters, he uh, Brandon Maggot was actually not a fan of the movie and had moral qualms about it. Now, really? Yeah. Now, it it seems like that must have changed because he ended up recording a commentary track for it. I have nev- I've never heard his commentary track, so I'd be interested to hear that. To Maybe mm. he's had a change of mind over the years. It, it, you know, it happens. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope so because he he'd done a, a stellar job on it, and uh, I'd like to think that uh, he likes what he did with it at least. If you think Harry's brother Philip looks rather familiar, it's probably because he's played by actor Geoffrey Demun, who came to much more prominence later in his career as Peacemaker Dale in The Walking Dead. Now, um, this time around, watching it again for the third time, I was looking at him and thinking, I know that guy. I recognise that guy because he's a very expressive actor. And I had to look him up immediately. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's Dale from The Walking Dead. Of course, the first few times I'd seen it, The Walking Dead didn't exist as a TV show. Uh, did you? Of course. Yeah. You're a fan of The Walking Dead, aren't you, Tom? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's funny. I, I watched it and I recognised his face, but I, I didn't pay it much thought, to be honest. And it's only when uh, we were chatting earlier that, I, oh yeah, it's the guy from The Walking Dead. I didn't put the two together. I think it's because we're so used to him. You know, obviously now he's he's a lot older and he's grey, and uh, mm. we used to uh, watching him and uh, looking at him with that safari hat on. But we don't, uh, yeah. you know, we're not used to it. But yeah, that that's uh, Jeffrey Demont. And finally, one uh, final bit of uh, trivia here: Kathleen Turner had originally auditioned for the role of Harry's sister-in-law, but was turned down. So that would have been interesting, wouldn't it, to have seen her in that? I suppose. It wasn't the biggest part, but I'm sure she didn't lose much sleep over it later on. So if you want to get it, the film was released on Blu-ray back in November from Vinegar Syndrome. It's a 4K restoration, and it comes with a number of extras, including, uh, most notably, commentary tracks with director Lewis Jackson, a fan, John Waters, of course, the infamous director, and actor Brandon Maggart. Um, It's also available on DVD from Synapse, which is the version I have. I'm not entirely sure, Tom, if the Blu-ray is an... A region free thing right um, so i'll need to look into it for you 
Um, so obviously I can't tell you guys. I really should have looked into that before I, I started recording. I would love to get that release if it is, though, because it sounds a 4K restoration. I think it's one that's worth keeping, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I'll also add as well, uh, I'm a bit of a vinyl enthusiast. I'm not a hipster, but mm-hmm. I, do like, uh, <laughs> I do like... I do like... There's a few companies doing it now, like Death Waltz Recording in the UK, Um Waxwork Records, I think, a few of them. But uh, Death, Death Waltz Recording have just released the soundtrack on vinyl. Now, I didn't actually get it, to be honest, because I, I think the soundtrack is it's fine for the movie i'm just not so i'm just not sure it's something i would sit and listen to it doesn't really stick out to me as that sort of soundtrack but if that's your thing if you did like it then that's there as well so that was christmas evil now thomas elliot he's the man with the plan and he's got a van but there are no children in it as far as we know tom <laughs> tell me about this nonsense <laughs> happy bir- happy birthday to me <laughs> Okay, happy birthday to me. 1981, we seem to spend a lot of time in 1981. Mm. Um, Directed by J. Lee Thompson, written by John Saxton, Peter Jobin and Timothy Bond. Uh, The film opens with a classic stalk and slash sequence as Bernadette, a member of Crawford Academy's elite clique, the top ten, struggles to escape a largely unseen killer. Still, almost escape she does until she meets someone familiar to her, but not to us, and takes a razor blade to the throat. So, with one member of the top ten down, we move on and meet the rest of them, and our main character, Virginia Ginny Cartwright, played by Melissa Sue Anderson, a new member and a popular student at the school. Her best friend Anne, played by Tracy E. Bregman, seems protective of her and also is part of the top ten. Ginny has seemingly settled down in the local town with her father Harold, played by Lawrence Dane. Uh, Ginny's got an interesting past, one which is slowly revealed through the course of the film. She's had experimental brain surgery, which we discover is related to a car accident she was in alongside her mother. Initially unaware of the procedure, throughout the film she begins to remember key moments from her past and from the operation. She seeks the help of her doctor, David Faraday, played by Glenn Ford, who helps her to make sense of the memories that are coming back to her. Meanwhile, there's a black-gloved killer prowling around the top ten group, picking them off one by one. A French student, Etienne, meets a grisly end when his face is pushed into the spokes of a wearing motorcycle. A jock, Greg, has his neck crushed by the killer while weightlifting. So who is this mysterious killer? The finger seems to point to several suspects, including the weirdest member of the group, Alfred, who has a fetish for gory makeup effects. However, when Alfred is killed at the local graveyard and, good-natured, and a good-natured student is violently murdered with a shish kebab, the killer is shown both times to be Ginny. She wakes up being unable to remember the previous night in both cases. As the members of the top ten are being whittled down, Ginny herself seems convinced that she is the one committing the murders. Could the brain surgery have contributed to the blackouts, or is there another explanation that might account for the bodies that sit at the table for Ginny's birthday as the movie nears its conclusion. Perhaps a shocking twist lies in store that will change the outcome of events forever. Can't live in the past, honey. Daddy, I have to remember. 
David says until I stop repressing what happened, I, I won't be completely cured. He says I'm progressing very quickly. Jenny, we've been happy together. I don't want any of those memories to change that. God, sometimes I wish we'd never moved back here. I love this house. I like living here. I like my school. I like my friends. Please don't take that away from me. If this is where you want to live, this is where we'll live. This is where I want to be. Case closed. So, happy birthday to me. Chris, are you happy with this one? Well, not especially, Tom. I think there's potential here. I've seen this movie before, by the way. I've seen it once before. I think there's a potential here. One word I I would... I think I would use for this to, to sort of sum it up. I am going to actually review the movie, but just kind of sum it up with one <laughs> with one word. I would say confused is mm. that word. Um, I think it, it, it's a decent slasher. I think it's well made. I think it's you know, reasonably well acted. The director of the movie, we've got to talk about him in a little bit because you would, would be quite surprised actually by this guy's previous work. Um, it, it's, it, a director of some note, I would say that. But I think the I think the the biggest problem with this movie is that it's overly ambitious. Mm-hmm. It wants to do things um, that I think are, are I think that are too convoluted for a slasher movie. Now I have to give it credit for trying something different. Uh, we'll we'll sort of explain what what all of this means a bit later on. I just think that they they were trying too much. There there were problems with this movie during production anyway, which we'll also talk about. I think there were changes that were made while they were filming that make this film far less effective than than, than it should be. I can see exactly what you're saying, um, and and I agree. I think what I would say one of its major strengths is, I suppose, is. And this was quite apparent from the get-go. I think in terms of the way it's filmed, the way it looks, the quality of it, the sort of substance in that way is a cut above probably, you know, 90% of the slashes or more of that time. It seems to me, and the fact that J. Lee Thompson is, is such a noted director is what probably accounts for this. It seems to me of... Uh, a film from a different age almost in the way it looks and it's made but then it's sort of also an 80s slasher so it, it sort of straddles the, these two worlds you know I mean that initial uh, death in the car mm-hmm. was like uh, you know I was watching it and the music was going it was like something out of an old Hitchcock movie or something It it in terms of the quality of how it's made I think it is better than most slashes, but that doesn't necessarily mean it accomplishes what a good slasher should, because I agree with you, the story itself, I found a cut above nonsense, you know, (laughs) just, it was almost nonsense, I could see, I could see what was going on and everything, but it was just like, what, really, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think you can't fault the production of this and the way it's made. You, I mean, we might as well get into talking about, before we get into the plot of it, let's talk about J. Lee Thompson for a minute, because I think he's important here. Yeah. Uh, 
we said he's a notable director. The reason he is, he's quite a strange pick for a slasher movie. Um, he's previously directed a couple of a, a number of classic films, including 1961's The Guns of Navarone and mm. 1962's Cape Fear, both hugely acclaimed movies, classic part of old Hollywood. Um, he also directed two films in the Planet of the Apes series. I'm a big fan of those original movies. They're, Oh, me too. Me too. Love them. I would actually say I know a lot of people wouldn't agree with me. I actually, I actually love all of them. Mm. Even though you could argue that some of the later ones are not that great, the original is always going to be considered the best. But he directed Conquest of the Planet of the Apes and Battle for the Planet of the Apes, released in 1972 and 73 respectively. So immediately here, this is not some hack director, and I think, no. I think this is what makes it a major cut above final exam and graduation day where they look like they're made by directors who are sort of fairly new to the scene this one i think it's got a sheen to it hasn't it a a certain kind of quality and texture that is i would even say puts it above in terms of the production quality above even you know friday the 13th oh definitely definitely you can tell that this is a seasoned sort of uh i hate to use the term old school sort of director classic director Mm -hmm. rather than the sort of schlockier ones who are making films that this gets lumped with. Um, he's He's got talent that far exceeds theirs in some ways, but it perhaps means it's it's he's maybe not the right for the jo- man for the job in other ways. I mean, it, it's interesting he, he has this great pedigree, but um, towards the end of his career, he's making... Uh, he directed some of the Death Wish movies. Now, I'm a big fan of the first two Death Wish movies. Yeah. Um, the later ones were getting a bit silly, and I think he directed one or two of them. And he also directed a lot of the Death Wish knockoffs that Charles Bronson was making oh, at the really? time. Yeah. Um, so it, it seems that his career maybe took a bit of a downturn near the end, which is sad, but, you know, I don't mind a bit of Charles Bronson, you know... Uh, schlock either but um but yeah so i think the thing that makes it look that good and like you say that sheen is definitely there is also the thing that makes him maybe not the right man for the job in other ways but i don't know you you can't fault him i think the fault with this is probably the script yeah and we'll we'll, we're going to get into that as we sort of explore the plot here because there were script issues that got, kind of got in the way of this. And I think, you know, like I was saying when I first started talking about this, I think there's a there's the potential there for something really good. I think what's one of the major problems I have with this is it's too long. Uh, I yeah. think that a, a slasher, there are exceptions, but I think a slasher needs to be around 90 minutes or so, and it needs to be quite punchy. I, this is actually almost two hours long. I think it's about an hour and 50 minutes. I think it's too long. It just, yeah. I thought, you know, towards the end, they're stretching it out. And I think that's what happens when you have a script, which, as it turns out, was rewritten a number of times while they were filming. So already there, you know, you've got a there's a problematic thing there. Uh, But let's get into the plot of it. So we've talked about Bernadette. She's uh, killed off at the beginning of the movie. Uh, I actually you were saying that it's something out of it, kind of like something out of Hitchcock. And Mm. um, I really like that scene. It it almost reminded me as well of an old 70s giallo. I, I agree. So we're introduced to Virginia Ginny Cartwright, played by Melissa Sue Anderson. Now, Melissa Sue Anderson actually at this point was was quite famous in America. She she had a a role in a Little House on the Prairie, which my mother used to watch the hell out of, and uh, I never did because um, it didn't appeal to me whatsoever. Have you ever seen any of it? 
I've never seen it, no. But she was apparently, you know, one of the the main cast members in there. Uh, what, how do you feel about uh, Melissa Sue Anderson as a, a sort of the lead, the, the central role here? She she was fine, you know. Um, she she is again probably a cut above a lot of. I was going to call her the final girl. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that really fits the bill this time. It kind of does, but she's a cut above a lot of them in in terms of her acting ability, and it goes hand in hand with you know the director being who he is and and the quality he brings to it. You know this this fair section is her going about her school life, um, and I think the and and she's discovering these memories that are coming back to her of her accident and her brain surgery and stuff like that. So it, all this is sort of going on mm-hmm. with her, her friends who are just, I found to me the most thoroughly unlikable <laughs> group, you know, going, but, but not only unlikable, but annoying. They annoyed me. Um, well, the thing is the, the, this group, they're called the top 10. And basically well, it's a group that is comprised of rich, rich kids that's what it is mm. and they're snobby and you know so i think that makes them inherently unlikable apart from yeah. i think Ginny is is quite likable the the mm-hmm. problem that you have here is is based on the the script decisions it's quite hard i mean it, it might sound like i'm sort of i'm trying to feel my way around this it's quite difficult to get into the plot of it because it it it's going off in in different directions there there are you know, I want to talk about this, the script issues, and I will to, when we get towards the actual end of the plot, because it'll make more sense as to why we saw the ending that we did. But there, there are scenes in here where it's it's quite clear to me that Ginny, her character was meant to go a certain way that they then changed towards the end. My annoyance with the characters get, sort of goes beyond who they are as well. I just, just found them unpleasant to watch to the point where, you know, I think another time I might have just turned it off because they just annoyed me so much and I don't get some of the their actions and it's not that I just don't get them I don't quite understand them either yeah. um there's this scene in a bell tower where there's this male guy I can't remember his name but he pulls a knife out and he's sort of trying to scare Ginny with it and I think we're supposed to think that she dies but she doesn't and it's all getting very confusing but I couldn't tell whether she was supposed to be imagining this or is he just such a dick that he pulls a knife on his friends for a laugh because it seems to keep happening, these things, like the the guy with the, the severed head earlier on who tried to fool his friends. They, they just they do st- stupid things and I, I just don't understand why. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I, think, I think the reason this is happening is because, first of all, it's supposed to be a whodunit. So the the killer mm. in the movie who's picking off members of the top ten is this sort of un you know an unseen killer very much the the standard thing at that time. This is before we start getting into masks and things like that. It's just an unseen killer with a pair of black gloves on. I think that they were they were trying to do this thing of 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 giving us red herrings and suspects. So you've got you know, near the beginning of the movie, you know Alfred, the, the guy you were talking about with the severed head, is this weird kid. It doesn't make sense at all why he would be in this this you know social clique uh when he's mm-hmm. clearly a, a massive weird nerd you know doesn't really make sense why he's there in the first place he scares the, the two girls Ginny and Anne um, with a severed head that's made to look like Bernadette who has gone missing yeah so you've got him uh, early on in the film you've got Etienne the French student who ends up climbing into uh Ginny's window and steals a pair of her panties I guess and then mm. you know so it, he was a he was an arsehole as well 
he meets a rather he meets a rather <laughs> gri- meets a rather grisly end though I have to say. Uh, yeah. So you've got him. Then you've got the guy you were talking about. I can't remember his name either, but he's the one who's playing soccer in the game. He's very competitive. Yeah. Uh, so he 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 uh, pulls a knife out for no reason. Uh, then you've got in flashback scenes her mother, which I I honestly think they meant to make you believe that it was possible her mother survived the drowning. Right. Because she's so angry that her daughter can't get into the birthday party of this guy that she had an affair with. And we'll, we'll get mm-hmm. around to explaining why that's so important. Um, so I, 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 I think you're meant to believe that all these different people could be the killer. The problem is that it's, I think it's just not done very well. I think it, it, yeah. it's really confusing. Like they, There's no explanation at all for why this guy up in the bell tower is suddenly incredibly maniacal. And then later on, uh, we find out he's still alive and he was playing a joke and all of a sudden now he's, oh, I'm the jovial guy out there playing soccer. It doesn't make any sense, does it? No, no, that, that's it. You know, they are trying to set up these red herrings, but there's no subtlety there. The, it's just everyone just does stupid things that a killer would do, you know, and that's what it's all about. It's, uh, yeah, it's nonsense. Yeah, it's some of the worst sort of foreshadowing you know the red herring kind of thing that I've that I've seen for for a while. I think. Uh, mm-hmm. What about the the violence in the movie, Tom? I mean, it's it's it should be it it you know it's a slasher movie. There are there are violent scenes in there that make me think that perhaps I, I believe the film was was made before Friday the Thirteenth, or it was in production while that other film was being made. So it wasn't necessarily capitalising on Friday the Thirteenth, but I think there are there are elements of that in there. How do you feel about the violence that's here? I think it's it's quite artfully done. You, you know, you mentioned it uh, reminds you of a Jallo earlier on, and I think I actually quite like the kills. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of details there that are a lot of flourishes that remind me of some good Jallos too. I mean, the whole thing is quite Jallo esque in terms of the the kills, a bonkers plot. I mean, we we accept some bonkers plots in Italian yeah, movies all the time. Um, but uh, so I, I think the kills are really artfully done. There's usually a detail in each of them that sort of makes it quite unique, quite nice. You know, the, the weight kill was good. Or I can't really, it's about a week since I've seen it now, so I wish I could go into more detail. But I do remember uh, sitting watching them at the time, thinking that when a kill did happen, even though they're spaced out quite, uh, quite more than they should be, that they were nicely done. Yeah, I, I can't disagree. I, I do think that. I mean, they're they're very quick cut. That's the only yeah. thing. They sort of the kills are there and then they're not. Like they flash away quite quickly. Uh, now, if you go to the website hysterialives.co.uk, it's a great website for slasher movies, and they have many articles on there. They I remember at one point many many years ago, I was reading an article about My Bloody Valentine, which is one of my favourite. Um, sort of obscure slashes. It's a Canadian slasher made made uh, in the same year, actually, 1981. And the the guy on there, I can't remember his name, I think it's Justin Kurzweil is the guy who runs that site. He was doing some research in a, in a great article talking about all this stuff that was cut out of My Bloody Valentine. Mm. And it's so fantastic. Many years later, that footage that was was excised ended up, ended up being found and they released a, a fantastic Blu-ray that includes the uncut footage. Now, the uncut footage looks very different to the normal footage, but it's still... It, it, you can watch a version of the film where it's got it inserted in there and it's fantastic. And he's got an article on there about Happy Birthday to Me. And it seems like 
at some point now we don't we don't know for sure there were there are stills on that website where a couple of the kills are much more graphic than what we actually see in the movie particularly the one with the etienne getting his it, uh, the killer sort of shoves his uh, scarf into the um, the whirring motorcycle wheel and it pulls his face into the wheel and it's yeah. much more graphic this picture and um, you ever get a chance uh, either yourself tom or anybody who's listening to this go and have a look at the pictures it seems like the the, the deaths were intended to be more graphic mm. now whether you know the reason this article was made because they were wondering was there any footage that was cut out that maybe we can find that it may just be that these were professional stills that were taken um, they do that sometimes on sets and they perhaps they never even film those scenes but it does I think this film could have stood out a bit more if those you know if the f- fully graphic death scenes had been left in the problem is the MPAA at that time they were so strict in America I don't think those kills would ever would ever have made it made it in um, the way they were but go and have a look at that article if you can because it's quite fascinating to see Especially the the um, the motorcycle death it, it is pretty it's pretty graphic. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. I'll I'll look out for that. Uh, it is one of many things I think that, like we said earlier, that the film just seems to straddle two worlds and not be particularly comfortable in either of them. And you know that's that's probably one of the main issues. I mean. Shall we get to the sort of climax now, do you think? Yeah, let's get to the climax. We've been watching Ginny. Uh, We've been seeing that she's having flashbacks related to her past. She's been in this car accident alongside her mother. She's ended up having this brain surgery. Now, up until a certain point in the movie, we've been under the illusion that there's some unseen killer out there and we've got the various suspects. And then something happens in... You know, Ginny's in a graveyard paying respects to her mother. She's laying down flowers. Alfred comes in there. And they, they want to make you think that Alfred might be pulling a knife out of his pocket. In actual fact, he's pulling a flower out of his pocket to give to her. And Ginny kills Alfred with a knife. And we see that it's Ginny. Later on, there's another guy named Steve. Uh, another who's actually played by... Uh, what is this guy's name? Because I've seen him in a bunch of things. Uh, Matt Craven, who's a very recognisable character actor in tv shows in america he ends up you know sort of hooking up with Ginny, and she cooks him a couple of shish kebabs and i think you know this scene this is actually believe it or not uh, this is the kill that is most the best best remembered kill from the movie it's whenever anyone talks about this movie they always talk about this scene because it was on the the box art on the vhs tape the box art was a guy getting a shish kebab shoved into his mouth. It, as it turns out, the guy on the on the cover is not the same guy who's in the movie. And Ginny, you know, they're sort of playing around with each other, kissing, and she takes a shish kebab and she shoves it violently into his throat, which is probably my favourite kill in the movie. Um, it's very mm. quick, but um, and we see that it's Ginny. So now Ginny has killed two people, or has she? What we're made to think is that, well, what's happening here? Is Ginny killing people and then having blackouts, waking up and not remembering that she's killed people? Now, this is where we come to the climax, and this is where we can start to sort of talk about the issues with the script. I read some information on Wikipedia. You have to take it take it with a grain of salt. So it'll all make sense when we explain the ending to you. According to Wikipedia, this film was originally scripted to have a different ending than the one we see. Now, a script on the Retro Slashers website seems to indicate that the original plan was to have Virginia as the killer all along. Um, But this ending was changed somewhat late in production as the filmmakers felt the original ending wasn't climactic enough. 
so the script was rewritten even while filming. I think this is this is the key issue. Let's explain the, the climax, um, Tom. Let's sort of get into that, and then I'll tell you why why I have a problem with this and why I why the script issues I feel is is you know perhaps the the biggest problem here. Uh, the climax of the movie is all the people who've been killed laid out around a table. They're all sitting there. And Ginny's father comes home. He's been away on a business trip. He's played by the, the, in my opinion, the great Lawrence Dane, who you probably remember from Scanners. He played uh, Keller in that one of the one of the villains in there. And he comes home and he sees all these dead bodies around there. And Ginny comes out with a birthday cake, and she ends up murdering her father. So at this point, we're thinking, okay, well, obviously Ginny is the killer. At some point, they decided to rewrite the ending to the movie. I th- I have to say, I think this ending is absolute nonsense. I think it is just, I think it, anything that's good about the movie is, is take, it's not completely taken away, but I think much of the goodwill I have towards this is, is taken away just by how absolutely nonsensical this whole thing is. Definitely. I'll, I'll give it this. I liked when she walked into this, uh, this sort of, uh, little annex, this little house or, or something that is on her dad's land, this little separate piece and all the dead people are there. Mm-hmm. Sort of the guests to the party that she had who never came, you know. And it, it makes sense, you know. She was let down all these years earlier. She was unpopular at school. She threw this party. Nobody came. She's went mad, killed all these people for their friends and brought her to her party. You know, simple, fine. Yeah. It works. The image of them all sitting around the table in various states of, uh, you know, death is is good, and it, it creates a nice sort of image. But then it all just goes bonkers, and I didn't. I'll be honest with you, mate. I didn't have a clue what was going on. The there's Ginny, and then another Ginny walks in mm-hmm. and says that she she's her twin sister or something. Well, well, what actually happens is that we we've seen that Ginny's killed all these people and her father. And then, so Ginny walks sort of, sort of, you know, along the table, and she lifts up the head of somebody who's on the table, who we think is Anne, because it, she's dressed in the same outfit as Anne. And as it turns out, Ginny, on the, Ginny is actually on the table, is sitting on a chair, you know, at the table. So now all of a sudden we've got two Ginnies. <laughs> there's a Ginny that's at the table, and there's a Ginny standing up. They're both played by Melissa Sue Anderson, of course. And so at this point we're thinking, okay, uh, I remember when I first saw this movie, I thought, okay, well, obviously it's an evil twin sister. And mm. she's been you know, a secret twin sister she knew nothing about. I actually think that would have been better than what we get. But what mm. we do get is that they, they have a struggle. Uh, you know, so uh, Ginny wakes up and the other Ginny, they have a struggle. And the real Ginny grabs at fake Ginny's face and pulls away a latex mask. And underneath it is Anne, her best friend, who we've previously seen drowned in a bathtub, so we presume she's dead. Mm. Now, this must be the most magical latex mask ever made, Tom, because not only can you look exactly like somebody, you can sound exactly like them, you can inherit the shape of their body, Mm. everything. So it turns out that Anne has apparently been wearing this magical latex mask. She's been going around pretending to be Ginny, what she's been doing is, is uh, using chloroform to uh, knock Ginny out 
and then killing people pretending to be Ginny so she can frame her. The reason she's doing this is because Ginny's mother had sex with her father. Uh, I'm guessing her father gave Ginny's mother a baby, which turned out to be Ginny. Therefore, they're half-sisters. But because of Anne's father's... <laughs> because, of Anne's, <laughs> because of Anne's father's affair, Anne's family broke apart. And therefore, she's so upset that she has to pretend to be another woman and look exactly like her and kill all of her friends. I just think it, I think it's rubbish. And, and I'll explain why it's rubbish. The reason it's rubbish is because it seems like, like I was saying before, based on the original script, the filmmakers intended for Virginia to be the killer all along. And what happened was they felt that the original ending, it wasn't good enough. It wasn't dramatic enough. So what happened was while they were filming the movie, they rewrote the ending to make it mm. to make it seem like more of a twist, which it does. It just is a twist that doesn't make any logical sense because you cannot put a latex mask on somebody and look exactly like them, sound like them and inherit their body shape when it's clearly being played by the same actress. So it... Um, I, I think, Tom, if you actually watch this movie, I think a lot of the movie, I think you can tell through a lot of the movie that they meant for Virginia to be the killer. Yeah, yeah. Well, that would make sense because I think let's strip it back, keep it simple. You know, Ginny's had this brain operation. Uh, she's having blackouts. She's got the trauma from this birthday party years earlier. And when she blacks out, she kills people. And then she has this realisation at the end that she's killed all these people and she's recreated this birthday party with all the guests. It would have been fine. It would have been simple. You know, a few red herrings along the way. Nice reveal. Bet better red herrings than we actually got, hopefully. You know, it could have been all right, but this is just muddled uh, nonsense. And the latex mask thing, <laughs> you know, you, you can't even do that now with that sort of... Yeah. Uh, you know, disregarding body shape and voice and all that, and um, purely a latex mask of that quality. You know, maybe the best makeup artists in Hollywood can do things, but you know, you see it all the time. Full full face makeup often just looks really fake, even now. So so some girl has just managed to do this and and pull it off completely convincingly. It is just rubbish. I think it destroys a lot of the goodwill towards this movie that you're going to feel. If you happen to have liked what you've seen so far, and I happen to think that if if the narrative was was you know smoothed out a little bit more, if it was simpler, and I think if you'd cut it down to 90 minutes, you know, take 15, 20 minutes out of this, I think it would have been a very serviceable slasher. But that ending, it I, I, I'll say this much: I don't want to, I don't want to spoil it too much. But I, did you ever see a film called April Fool's Day? Uh, a long time ago. Mm -hmm. That film has a twist ending on it that I think works a lot better than this. I think we've made our point with that. Overall, the film, uh, I wouldn't say it's a completely waste of time. Some people might like it, actually, and it, it seems to be relatively well thought of, uh, you know, looking down comments and so on, but I don't think I would sit through it again. Um, yeah. It is too long, like you said. I, I did get bored with it, and... A few things kept me watching, you know, the kills were decent, but like you said, very quick. It was interesting to a degree, and it wasn't a complete waste of time, but I can't really recommend it. No, it's it's difficult to recommend, like you say, but I'll say I'll say this. It, if you're curious about it, 
it might be worth giving it one watch because you've got to i think you've got to see the ending because the ending is it, it it is ridiculous you won't quite believe what you're seeing and it won't make sense to you we've got a piece of feedback where somebody's actually asking well can we explain it to them no <laughs> we can't we don't we don't know either um it just is something that happens but it, it is difficult to to yeah it's difficult to recommend that you buy it because it, it it doesn't accomplish what it said that's very ambitious but uh, i think it ultimately failed yeah definitely uh so that is happy birthday to me if you want to buy the movie uh in america the film can be purchased on blu-ray as part of a double bill alongside the original when a stranger calls with carol kane that is not a region free uh blu-ray release so if you want if you're in england you'd have to have a region free player um, there's also a DVD available in the UK from Sony that was released in 2004. Avoid that release uh, because it's got a horrible cover on it that doesn't reflect the movie whatsoever. Uh, and it contains the wrong score. It's got like a disco score that runs throughout it. Uh, if you can find the 2009 Anchor Bay DVD, that's probably the best one that you can get on DVD. You can also buy the film on Amazon as part of their instant video collection. Good. Okay. Well, I think that uh, will finish us up on happy birthday to me and should we get to some feedback yes we've got quite a lot of feedback this week in fact and we begin with my friend and yours christopher brown he's taken time out of his busy schedule of complaining about everything on twitter to uh send us a piece of audio (laughs) feedback as he always does he watches the films alongside us and we're very grateful for it uh christopher brown take it away gentlemen christopher brown here journalist author cultural attaché I wish to speak to you today, well, about both films, in fact. Happy Birthday to me, uh, the, in, for me personally, is interesting because it shares similarities to a film that was made at exactly the same time. A film that's on the Video Nasties list, in fact, called Madhouse. Now, both of them have this kind of birthday theme to them, and there's a, a party scene, shall we say. And it, the, if, you, if you put them side by side, there are very strong similarities. So strong, in fact, that a lot of people say that one of them cribs off the other. Indeed, I think that Happy Birthday to me might have took a bit of the audience away from Madhouse. Um, the reality is, it's complete coincidence. They're completely separate. And made at the same time, without any knowledge of what the other guy was doing. So, um, I think that's always very interesting, the way those kind of things can happen, where two films just come out at the same time, and the one that comes out first is effectively the winner of that. But what I really want to talk to you today is about Christmas Evil, which is one of my favourite festive horror films, if not one of my favourite Christmas films. It's a wonderful character piece with, um, at its heart, as a man you feel so sorry for, who has this really skewed look at the world, but you kind of feel like he's just so helpless. He tries so hard and he, things just get worse and worse and worse for him. And he completely loses control of his life. And... That's a real horrific thing for me, I always find. It. You know, the, the good man that just stumbles and falls away and can't really manage in his life. So I'm really looking forward to, uh, to hearing your views on this one. We keep on disagreeing on, uh, on stuff, which is great. <laughs> Actually, I really like that. Um, one of the things I always, I always love about podcasting is the way that no matter what you say, there's always a guy that will, who's a listening who always comes back and kind of says, you're completely wrong. This guy's amazing. It, um, particularly with like you know the Jess Franco stuff, where you can easily dismiss it, but there are armies of these incredible fans who love it. Uh, if I'm allowed to, can I just do a quick pimp as well for for a podcast that's sitting on 
the Gentleman Grinds House Records uh, website, or will be soon anyway. It is the Night Gallery Podcast Christmas Special, which I've just recorded. It's the first Night Gallery Podcast I've done in two years, and it is brand new, and it's not about the Night Gallery. It's about a film called A Carol for Another Christmas, a lost sailing Christmas special that has very strong links to A Christmas Carol, but is incredibly bleak and uh, not very festive, despite its uh, obvious Christmas themes. If you, that's something that you, people would be interested in, please listen. And um, I've been trying to drum up support again from the old, uh, the old Twilight Zone network crowd. There is another point as well that we keep on batting to and forth, and I, I, I wish to extend an olive branch to you, gentlemen. Um, perhaps we should bear with the hatchet on this and no longer call me a fucking thief, because frankly, that's not very nice. And I won't keep on threatening you with court action for that. Although I will say this after listening to last ep- the last episode. Snitches get stitches, lads. Don't forget. But anyway, as I say, let us raise a glass. Enjoy Christmas time. And I look forward to many more of your uh, podcasts next year. Take care. I'll see you soon. Goodbye. Good. Another good piece of feedback there from uh, our friend Christopher Brown. And uh, we agree on one for once. You know, we... we tend to disagree with him sometimes which is fine but uh, he's a fan of Christmas Evil which is good but uh, he said uh, something about us calling him a fucking thief or something I, I can't really remember what he's talking about to be honest no. but uh, you know he said something about burying the hatchet I didn't I didn't realise there was anything to bury but I don't know what do you think yeah I'll bury the hatchet in his face Tom right in his face no actually let, let's be honest he's a, he's a good friend of the show and it is Christmas time, isn't it? It is. It so is. Let, let, let's um, let's raise the flag of peace. We're okay with you now, Chris Brown. And thank you very much for the feedback. You have always uh, you know, stuck with us. You send us something every every time we release an episode. And uh, we're happy to have you alongside us. And um, even though I feel that you probably are a thief, um, I'm willing to overlook it because um, you're, you're a good man. So thank you very much, Chris Brown. Yay, yay. Yay. Now, Tom, we have some email feedback to get to. We've got a lot of stuff to get through, so we're going to move through it fairly quickly. We got an email from a guy named Seth McKevlin. Tom, do you want to read this one? Yeah, let's uh, let's do it. Seth uh, from Dallas, Texas. I used to live in Texas. Mm. Uh, Seth says, Chris and Tom, greetings from Texas. I love The Strange and Deadly Show. I wanted to give you some feedback for the last few movies you've covered. Good stuff. Okay, he says, Pigs. I'm surprised that Tom didn't mention his love for Somebody's Waiting For You, the song from Pigs, after he expressed his love for Gangster Rock from Graduation Day. Uh, it wasn't so much the song that I loved. It was the scene. But uh, Somebody's Waiting For You, it's it's one of those annoyingly catchy ones, isn't yeah. it? You, you just can't help but sort of get it stuck in your head but it's sort of annoying at the same time how does time. it go like somebody's waiting for you <laughs> something like that isn't it <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'll uh, i'll dig it up for you and send you a link um okay he says i have to admit the song from pigs was very annoying at first but grew on me after hearing it about six times throughout the movie <laughs> uh, also the final reveal scene of pigs was not mentioned and i thought it was pretty cool does he mean the twist do you think where she makes it look like she's been eaten by the pigs but she's actually uh went to kill another day elsewhere yeah, and she, do you think that's she what picks up a guy, i guess so yeah 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 okay uh, he says, Brutes and Savages, 
I refuse to watch any more of this movie than I can help since I really can't take any animal killings, but I also found a free copy and took a quick look. I must say that the soundtrack is very cool actually. The restoration did it no favours, however, as it simply looks too clean to be a grimy Mondo movie in this condition. Also, the crocodile scene was priceless with the inside shots from the swimming pool. That has to be seen to be believed. It's a good point, actually. Sometimes you can clean something up too much, you know. But uh, I think even in grimy, uh, a grimy version of it, I'd have felt the same. Um, okay, then about the two films that we've talked about this week, Christmas Evil. Wow, wish I had the DVD with director's commentary since someone has a lot of explaining to do. I was hoping for a big payoff at the end of this one, but never quite got it. Weird ending, though. I have no idea what happened there. Well, we've uh, we've given our thoughts on it. Hopefully that'll, uh, that'll make some sense to you, Seth. Yeah, surrealistic. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, happy birthday to me. I know I've seen this before, but completely forgot who the killer was. It's well made, at least, and the DVD I have looks great. The ending to this was also confusing, and I'm looking forward to your explanation of it. Yeah, we're with you on that one, mate. And just for the record, I hate whodunit slashes. Christmas Evil's psychotic rampage killer was more to my liking. If he'd only gone on a balls-out rampage, then we'd really have something. Looking forward to a bit of Carpenter next time round when you cover the thing. He's my favourite director. Good choice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Keep up the great work, guys. Seth from Dallas, Texas. Good. New friends of the show. Thank you, Seth. Appreciate it, mate. Chiming in on... uh, the movies that's what we want yeah thank you very much and uh, i have to say if you hate whodunit slashes you, you're kind of missing out on be interested to know why you're kind of missing out on a bunch of cool stuff there like most um most yellows uh whodunits so um mm-hmm. be interested to know why you don't like them but yeah thanks very much seth and please do continue to write in in the future because we'd love to hear from you absolutely and uh you've got one from our old friend jake in ohio haven't you yeah jake from ohio who we have discovered thanks to this email uh is our friend Dr. Robotculus, who left a Mm. iTunes review for us. But let's read the email. Uh, Right away, I wanted to say that I meant no offence in my last email and was just, as you said, getting into the spirit of the show and just having some fun. Of course, I have great respect for both of you. I didn't mean to stir up controversy in the studio, but I'm glad that I was able to bring both of you a little closer to each other by insulting one of you. Mm. Yeah, well, I feel incredibly close to Tom at this precise moment. I want to type the things to you that I was saying to myself while I was watching Christmas Evil. Mostly, what the fuck? And, huh? (laughs) I didn't dislike this movie. I was just expecting a horror movie, and this is more of a thriller. Well, I think we agree with that, don't we, Tom? Absolutely. Actually, I found myself interested and waiting to see what was going to happen. I guess this movie is a precursor to Silent Night, Deadly Night. I think Christmas Evil did it better. If I had to describe this movie to someone who's never seen it, I would call it the taxi driver of Santa Claus movies. I think that's a great point. Absolutely. So are we to understand that Harry seeing his mum and dad have sex is what scarred him for life and made him a murderous weirdo obsessed with Santa Claus? Well, I guess if anything would do it to a person, it would be that. And was he trying to slit his wrist there as a child in the beginning? Because Santa's not real? Because his mum is cheating on his dad with Santa? Because Santa is just an arsehole? That wasn't too clear for me but I'm sure you two fellas will have some ideas to set me straight. I was a bit confused with the way he killed the three random people in front of the church, especially since he was so angry at his boss, who was just a few feet away, and he seemed to do more damage to the houses of the nice kids than he did to the naughty kid. He didn't even go inside the naughty kid's house, he just set dirt outside the house on top of more dirt. 
He fucking trashed the first house he went into, <laughs> cutting open their presents and shit. <laughs> I'm reading it the way uh, Jake wrote it, by the way, folks. Uh, there were times watching this where you might think you're just watching a normal Christmas movie too. By the end of it, I was really rooting for Harry. Uh, here, here. I wanted him to win, and I guess he did at the end, at least in his mind. I find it more fun to take the ending literally and expect a middle-aged guy in a cargo van to pull up next to my house this Christmas <laughs> Eve. All in all, I have to admit that I enjoyed this movie. And the actor who played Harry did a fair job, considering he had to play crazy in a room all by himself a lot. I assume that can't be an easy thing to do and not end up looking like a goofy ass. I guess the fact that I was yelling, go Harry, at the part when the mob was chasing him means he was a good enough actor to make me want to give him a hug. Also, I like the stuff about playing the right notes. I got the tune now. Yeah, we never mentioned that, did we? But that is, he says that a couple of times in the movie, doesn't he? I'm playing the right notes as if he's finally woken up to the idea of what he needs to do. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, guys, keep up the good work. Really happy to hear that this is a long-term project. Love it all. By the way, I'm the one you call Dr. Robotculus. I just wanted to make sure I got credit for that and to prove my allegiance to the show. Bloody as always, Jake from Ohio. Good, great stuff. Dr. Robotculus revealed. Thanks, Jake. Dr. Ridiculous. Thank you so much, Jake. <laughs> it's really nice to hear from you and please continue to write in. Okay, one more piece of feedback from an old friend of both of our old shows, I think, uh, Neil Tidbury uh, from Brighton. And he says, ahoy, hoy, gents. Thought it was about time I dropped you a little bit of feedback. I could say it was time because you're now up and running, but I think it would be fair to say you hit the ground running and haven't stopped yet. Furthermore, picking up where Chris, the thieving Tinker Brown, left <laughs> off by dipping your toe into the shallow end of the video nasties pool is a bold move. I thought there was some shite on that list, but what you guys are going to have to endure in the coming months and years is quite the catalogue of crap. You'd think starting off with cannibals, it could only be up from there, but man alive, I salute you, sirs. Granted, there are some gems, but it's the crap that's fun. Anywho, enough of the backslapping. Interesting to see how Happy Birthday to Me holds up, as my only memory of it was watching it at a house party and subsequently copping off with an accommodating young lady, and thereby wiping my memory of the film, except for vague recollections of weightlifting paraphernalia and the old family fun area. Uh, good choice, you know, if you've got a choice between a lady and uh, mm -hmm. happy birthday to me, I'd choose the lady as well. Um, he says, again, great to have you back doing what you do best, or if you do other things better, at least doing this better than most. Cheers, Neil from Brighton. Cheers, Neil. Thanks very much. And that's uh, uh, Tids71 in the Twitterverse. That's T-I-D-S 71. Go give him a follow on Twitter. Uh, now, you said that was the final piece of feedback here, Tom, and... Um, we said in the last episode we're not going to read iTunes reviews because it first of all it seems a bit egotistical of us to say here's, here's all our latest iTunes reviews and it would take up a lot of time but we've got a, a brand new review on I think it's the UK iTunes from is, yeah, yeah. from someone named Ash Dev and the reason I bring this up is because he, he makes a point at the end of his comment that I feel I need to sort of address um, yeah, I'm not going to read the whole thing but most of the comment is very positive isn't it Tom it's, it's talking about you know, he thinks we've got an interesting approach. Um, he says that it's a revelation. Uh, a couple of podcasts that deal with the band list, but what he's hearing with us is um, some films he's never heard of before. Uh, he likes the production values and that we contextualise the films for him. And um, so there's really positive stuff there. And I, thank you very much, Ash, uh, Ash Dev. I uh, don't know your real name, of course, but you know, thank you very much for leaving that. I'm really happy that you like it. And it's a five-star review, isn't it? So... 
yeah. we can't complain about. It. But there's one thing he said towards the end that I feel I have to comment on. And he's what he did is he he spread his his uh, iTunes comment out into good points and bad points. And the the one bad point at the bottom, uh, as you can imagine, has something to do with me. Um, I just want to read this. It says, the humour can be a bit juvenile. Well, gore boy to be exact. However, the lapses are infrequent and don't detract from the finished article. You know, first of all, I'm glad that they don't detract. I have to say, it makes me sad if somebody considers the, the humour that I bring to the show to be lapses in any way. Because that implies that, it, that they're, it's, a, it's a flaw. I have to say, say this about it. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. At the end of the day, I knew going into this show, Tom and I have, we have very different styles, don't we? Mm, yeah, yeah. The odd couple of podcasting in a lot of Yeah, ways. and so far I think it, it's worked very well. But we do have different mm-hmm. styles. Now, here's the thing about juvenile humour. I do think that people who have a silly sense of humour, it's very easy to, easy to categorise that kind of humour as juvenile. Well, I'm a 31-year-old man. I'm going to be 32 next year. I've had one hell of a year. <laughs> uh, if you guys know, you know, I'm not going to... It's on my Twitter, you know, if you ever look up, sometimes I post about it, something to do with my father. I've had a hell of a bad year. Quite frankly, if I'm able to still laugh at all, it's something of a miracle. There are a lot, as, a, as an adult, there are a lot of responsibilities that we have, whether it's uh, you know, working a job, paying bills, looking after our family, keeping things together. And I handle all those responsibilities the way that anyone should, the way that Tom does, the way that anybody does. However... I've always believed, ever since I was a kid, and moving on for, forwards from that, that growing up is overrated. I like to think that I'm a big kid at heart, really. And and I'm quite happy about that, you know, because if you haven't got that, if you can't laugh at yourself, if you can't be silly, what else have you got in life? If 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 you don't want to bring laughter to other people, what, you know, what is it? What are you, you know? It, uh, to me, it, it says that you're a little bit soulless. Now, the juvenile, you know, style humour is not going to be for everybody. I knew that. Um, so I'm just glad, Ash, that, that you're still listening to the show, that you still like it, that you can look past that. Of course, it saddens me that you don't like my brand of humour that I bring to it. Um, I try to bring intelligent points to it. But um, if I don't, then I'm, you know, I'm sorry for that. But I'm never going to be sorry for bringing that kind of humour because that is what I do. I'm a silly person. One of the reasons I have the, the girlfriend in my life that I do is because we're both goofy, silly people. And so I hope that you stick with us. But it, I just wanted to comment on that because it's kind of important that I contextualise exactly why I do it. You know, I, I don't want to be a 31-year-old who's aware of the fact that he's 31 and therefore can't laugh about himself. Uh, and, you know, we talk about, you know, penis jokes and, and all the sort of stupid, naughty things I say. Well, I grew up loving Rick Mail and Adrian Edmondson and a lot of bawdy British comedy. So for me, that's all a part of it. Uh, so yeah, like I said, thank you very much for the comment. Most of it was was very positive, and I, we're very grateful for it. But um, I do hope that I hope you, I just hope you carry on listening, and that it, it my humour doesn't become a distraction because it's always going to be there. I'm afraid. Yeah, we we are we are quite different in our approaches uh, to podcasting, you and I, and just just for me personally, I I, I appreciate the humour that you you know you bring to it I'm I'm often on the other end of it which is fine because we're mates and that's that's the way we've always been um you know uh, my style of podcasting is is very somber I remember a review of the Twilight Zone podcast once that called it very sober you know <laughs> and it, it was it was a positive review as well but it was just called it very sober and that you know that's the way I roll so uh, I think 
I appreciate the balance of that humor that you bring to it because it it lightens up in a way that I I it's I see it as a talent. I I see it as a plus. You know, it's a talent that I don't have. I don't have that that ability to to be funny. And you know, juvenile. There's juvenile and there's juvenile. You know, I, I still think there's there's a sort of a sharpness and a, and a wit to the way you do it that that I appreciate. Um, you know, it's it's not just saying cock for the sake of it and expecting people to laugh. Well, not all the time, but <laughs> <laughs> the, I think the last mention of the last uh, cock mention were, definitely was that. But uh... yeah, definitely was that. But uh, yeah, so that's you know that that's my input in it. But I'm glad you enjoy the show, uh, Ash Dev, and uh, yeah, so stick with us, mate, and uh, and thanks for your feedback on iTunes. Appreciate it. Okay, so that's the end of uh, this fortnight's show. Uh, happy birthday to me and Christmas Eve. We hope you've enjoyed it. As always, uh, I am Grindhouse Tom on Twitter, and Chris is the Gore Boy. Or you can get to us on our strange, deadly Twitter account as well. And if you wanna, I'm I'm really happy that we're getting this feedback through. It uh, I think it adds a lot of color to the show. Yeah. And uh, if you want to send a, an MP3 clip or an email, then uh, it's feedback at strangeanddeadly.com. Yeah, what we love is that some people are actually watching the films along with us. So that's uh, that's mm. brilliant because we get to hear your point of view. And at the end of the day, we'd make the show you know, not only for us, but also for you. So, yeah, feedback at strangeanddeadly.com. Do write to us and, and let us know. Uh, what you think of the show and what you think of the films that we're talking about. Um, now, we have to let you know that this is indeed the last episode of 2014. Uh, we're taking a bit of an extended break to account for Christmas and also the New Year, making sure we uh, pull Tom off the floor, because undoubtedly he's going to be completely hung over after New Year's Eve. So I have to <laughs> get him upright and get, it, get a microphone in front of him again. So the next show will be released on January 9th of next year. And we can reveal that the first episode of the new year will feature an alien theme and the films we'll be covering are The Thing and Extro. And yes, we're talking about John Carpenter's classic remake, The Thing, and Extro I've never seen before. I've not either. I'm actually uh, friends on Facebook with Tim Dry, the guy who plays the alien in Extro. So uh, yeah, I'll be interested to see it. Yeah, and uh, I don't think we need to say much about The Thing, do we, mate? I think that's that's one of our favourite films, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. A real horror classic, so that's going to be a pleasure. So, yeah, look out for us on the 9th of January next year. Until then, folks, what else can we say? Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you. Thanks a lot for supporting us as we get this thing going. Um, I think it means a lot to us, and um, we're going to do our best for you. We're going to carry on through 2015 reviewing a bunch of really bad movies, probably, but hopefully some gems in there as well. Absolutely. Happy Christmas, and uh, we will see you in the new year. Have a good one. Bye for now, folks.
At the factory, his co-workers are fairly dismissive of him. Dismissive. <laughs> At the factory, his co-workers are fairly dismissive. Dismissive. See, here we go. It's going to be one oh. word that's going to keep me held up all bloody day. Dismissive. Fairly dismissive. 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 <laughs> I don't think there's any way I can say this word and not sound... Why sh- does your voice go like that when you I say it? I don't know. Dismissive. <laughs> Maybe I should just say it like that and leave it. <laughs> <laughs> go on. <laughs> now let me give you two other quick pieces of trivia here before we move on to tell, telling you about how you can actually get this film and you should get it uh, if you think harry's brother philip looks rather familiar it's probably because he's played by actor jeffrey demun now you may be you yeah, hearing that name and thinking hmm, that sounds familiar this time watching it i was looking at it look oh god <laughs> As the member of the top ten are being whittled down, Jimmy, Ginny, Jimmy, <laughs> as the members of the top ten are, fuck, hold on, as the members of the top ten are being, good, good. Um, one more piece of feedback from an old friend of uh, both of our shows, I think, from back in the day. By guy, guy, by guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not casting any aspersions, Neil. No, we don't, we don't um, sorry, know what your sexual preferences are, Neil. Shame on you, Tom. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they are. Um, okay, Neil Tidbury. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Bye, guy. <laughs> right. <clears throat> Okay, um, I don't. Shall I do all of that again, or <laughs> I don't know? We got away with some of it. Um, okay, Neil says, "Ahoy, hoy, gents!" I thought it was about time I dropped you a little bit of feedback. Actually, sorry, Tom, we actually didn't even say his name. I th- didn't we? Because yeah, I, th- <laughs> I think he said Neil Thai guy or something. So we we'll start. Bye yeah, guy. we'll start again. Yeah, Neil Bye guy. So we'll start again from. Um, I've got a piece of feedback from our old friend. Yeah. Okay, at least you've got a blooper anyway. Um, 